0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Uh, Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there right now. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to start. We're going to go through a portion of the book of Ephesians today. So Ephesians chapter 2, it's uh, towards the back of the New Testament, and you can remember like this, Gentiles eat pork chops towards the back of the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians will help you find it as you're turning there. And so it's right after the book of Galatians, right before Philippians. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to do part two in our series called Be the Church. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for everybody who's gathered here together today. You knew that. You planned it uh, before the beginning of time that we would be in this room at this moment. I pray for those that are in the video venue. I pray for those of you watching online. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Through this message, I pray you'd do a work. Some of us need encouragement. Please encourage. Some of us need conviction. Convict. God, some of us, uh, you just want us to be with, with your family. Help us to be the family as a church. Help us to sense just by the look in each other's eyes sometimes when something's wrong. Help us to know uh, when somebody needs uh, to be prayed for. Help us to know when there's a burden that needs to be carried or when we need to, to, to confess sin to each other or care for one another in some way. Father, you, we looked at last week in John 13:35. You said that by the way that we care for each other, the world will know about your love. Help us to care for one another well. Help us to be the church. And God, speak to our hearts as we open up your word. Don't let us be the same when we leave. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as a pastor, I get some special privileges to be invited into people's lives during different times. Usually they're significant moments. Sometimes it's, you know, a funeral, uh, there's a loss, or just after a funeral, you talk to somebody who's lost a loved one. And those are, those are significant moments in people's lives. One of the, the fun times to be invited into people's lives is when you get to be a part of a wedding. And this past weekend, I was able to officiate a wedding. It's always been a kind of a pet peeve of mine when I hear pastors say, oh, I married that couple. Like, no, you didn't marry them. They married each other. You officiated the wedding, and so I got to officiate a wedding this past weekend, and we were in the mountains of North Carolina. If you haven't been able to go to the mountains before in North Carolina, it's a beautiful place, and the, the wedding that I was a part of, it was such a picturesque scene because we were literally in the mountains, like we were up on the rocks, we're standing on these rocks, and the father of the bride actually built a cross that we were at the foot of, and so there we are, we're like on the rock, there's so much symbolism there, at the foot of the cross, and we're standing there, and I'm standing there with the groom, who's about to see his bride come out, and I always love the moment when the groom sees the bride, but at this particular wedding, the way that we were standing is that she was gonna kinda come from the side, and so I was behind him, I didn't get to see his face, and then she comes walking up, and her dad gives her away, And then what happens, there's some transitions that take place, but I preach like a mini message, like a little short sermon. Believe it or not, it is possible for me to preach a short sermon. And really what I'm doing is I'm I'm giving a summary of the counseling that we've done in the premarital counseling. And most of that's based on Ephesians chapter 5. And so I'm challenging the audience, and my hope is this for the audience. For some people in the audience that are already married, I'm hoping that they kind of like squeeze their spouse's hand, like kind of reaffirm their commitment in their marriage. For people who aren't married, I'm hoping that they look and they go, if I were to ever get married, I want it to be like what that guy's talking about. Like that's what I want for marriage. And what I talk about is that what's the point of marriage? And the point is to put Christ's love on display. It's to put the gospel on display. A lot of people talk about it's romantic or, you know, because we fell in love with each other. And the the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. And the wife is supposed to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And and then it says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 33 that all this stuff has been a mystery of why a man and woman are to get married until the gospel came. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And so i preach that message. And then one of the most significant moments comes when... The two people exchange vows. And some of you have exchanged vows before, or maybe you've at least seen it in a movie, or you've heard a vow said. And unless a couple writes their own vows, I usually use pretty traditional vows. And so I'm going to read to you uh, the vows that were shared yesterday. And I'll just put my name in it, but uh, my wife's name. And I'll have the couple repeat after me. And I say, I, you know, Scott, take thee, Shanna, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, from this day forward till death do us part. And those are very familiar words to many of us. Some of you have said those words before. Many of you have heard those words before. These words are words of a significant commitment. Like, Think about it. have and hold. Oh, yeah, right, we just, we're cuddly. No, 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 Means more than that. From this day forward, what they're talking about is an exclusive commitment to each other. And then it goes through different circumstances, whether in sickness or in hell, regardless of what happens, richer or poor, no matter what the financial circumstances are, We're going to be, I'm committed to you, no matter what the circumstances are. I'm committed to two people committing in this thing. And that's a big deal in our society because we're pretty commitment averse. It's why, just simple, without giving you a bunch of stats and all the stuff about consumerism, we talked about some of that last week that fights really against being the church. But it's why we keep our options open until the last minute. You're not just a procrastinator. You've been conditioned. Something better might come along. So we get the worship night tonight and we're RSCPing. It's like, I don't know. Who knows what might happen on Sunday afternoon? I don't know if I want to commit to going to the, and so everybody like kind of comes at the last minute. That's I'm not condemning you for that or anything like that. It's just what we do. We're consumers. We want to keep our options open, but it also makes us averse to committing, which is a real problem. When we talk about being in the church. So can you imagine with me if instead of vows like this, you went to a wedding, you took time, you traveled, you did whatever you did, and then the vows went something like this. I want to be with you to have and hold you as long as you stay pretty. <laughs> as long as you do these things that my mom used to do for me when I was a kid and then you don't do these things that my mom used to do that drive me nuts. <laughs> and as long as you, and there's kind of a list of things. As long as you never do this, if you don't, don't ever do that, and, and as long as you do these things and go through this stuff. And by the way, I might have a couple other girlfriends, but you're like the main one. You're still my main squeeze, honey. <laughs> what would you feel like in the, if you were part of the, the, the people that were there at that wedding? You'd be offended at that. So why is it that we'd be offended at that at a wedding, but we're okay with people treating the bride of Christ like that? We're talking about being the church. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And many of us as Christians, we act like that. Just, that's just like a phrase that's used in the Bible. It doesn't really mean much to us. My wife was sharing with me a conversation she had with a woman that she met this summer. doesn't go to this church. And it struck me because it's so foreign to our culture. And she goes to this other church and... Uh, She said, I would never leave that church unless an extreme circumstance happened. Because I view commitment to a church like a a wedding, like a marriage. Like, I'm committed. That's my family. Those are the people that I'm a part of. Is that wrong? Or is that the way it's supposed to be? And and you can answer that question today as we go through this passage of Scripture in the the book of Ephesians. Because really my hope for you is that you'll answer one question today. Why would anyone commit to a church? And what I'm going to share with you, I think, is going to show you that if we actually did what the Bible says to do with the church, talk about an opportunity in this consumeristic culture that's commitment averse to be salt and light, to be different. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to the book of Ephesians, and I'll start reading in, in chapter 2. We'll read verses 18 through 22, but I'm really going to focus in on verse 19. And then we're going to go through several different sections of Ephesians today. And the context for Ephesians chapter 2 is Ephesians chapter 1. What happens in Ephesians chapter 1 is Paul's writing to these believers. And so he's writing just really to people who place their faith in Jesus Christ already. So they have a relationship with Jesus. And he tells them, when you place your faith in Jesus, you get a new identity. You're no longer just a, a, a person that's out there living in this world. You're adopted into God's family. You receive an inheritance. This is God's plan for you from before the beginning of time. You were chosen on purpose and for a purpose. You were chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. He gives you forgiveness. We can't even stay forgiven. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to live with inside of us. Amen? Amen. We can't do it. We couldn't possibly do the stuff that's talked about that's our identity. We've got all the spiritual inheritance. We don't even access most of the spiritual inheritance that we have. But it's all yours today in Christ. You're a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a big deal. You're forgiven, but we, we screw up again, we screw up again, we screw But you've got the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living inside of you. You've been reconciled to God. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 at the very beginning, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. But God raised you from the dead spiritually if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he says that reconciled people reconcile with each other. That's the next part of Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about how Jews and Gentiles have been not only reconciled to God, but they've been reconciled with one another. And then he gives us these images of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'll start reading verse 18, but 19 gives us two images, and verses 20 through 22 gives us an image. Look at it. It says, For through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, both Jew and Gentile, different people. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, first image, with the saints. Those are repenting sinners, the saints and members of the household of God. So there's a second image. Verse 20. Here's a third image. We won't talk much about this one this morning, so you'll go back and study it on your own if you want. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, of Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what you have here are three metaphors for the church, three ways that God views the church. And really what we're looking at when I talk to you about why should you commit to a church is to look at it from the way that God looks at the church. You think about the way that we look at the church. A lot of people, when they look at the church, they don't see a great thing. There was a study, uh, Dave Kinnaman did an extensive study and wrote a book with a guy named Gabe Lyons uh, several years back called UnChristian. And the study showed what young people think of when they think of the church. And, And I brought some of the statistics with you. So that 91% view the church as anti-homosexual. So if you want to know what you're going to be known for, is that what you're going to pick? 91% say anti-homosexual. 87% say judgmental. 85% hypocritical. 78% old-fashioned. 78% too involved in politics. 72% out of touch with reality, living in the fantasy world. 70% insensitive to others. <laughs> Think about that in light of John 13, 35 we talked about last week. How are they going to know? We love one another. You're insensitive to others is how we're known. just says boring. Now listen, I'm not a statistician. I'm going to summarize these for you. It's bad. (laughs) That's not good. Those are young non-believers, how they view the church. What about Christians? You ever heard this statement before? All the church wants is my money. They're just a group trying to get money from people. Or the church is just a religious business. It's just an organization that's out there. Or or maybe you've heard people say this statement before. Uh, The church is just, it's too messed up. I don't want to be a part of that. Or maybe I'm too messed up. I'll mess the church up. Like you hear these different statements about the church. Or sometimes you even hear Christians say, well, I'm part of the universal church. You know, that is a true statement. And you see in the New Testament, you'll see that there's two ways that the church is talked about. Sometimes the universal church, that's very few times the universal church. The majority of the time, it's talking about the local church, like the church at Ephesus, church at Laodicea, a church in a house. There's real specific groups of gatherings of people. But sometimes it does talk about the universal church. The universal church is all believers, by the way. And how does the universal church manifest itself? In the local church. And so some people might say that. I'm part of the universal church. I don't need to be a part of a local church. That's how it's applied. So we've got all these thoughts that are out there, and there's a lot of confusion about the, the church and what is the church, even amongst believers. And I think most people that are confused about the church fall into one of three categories. First category is they just don't know. They just don't know much about what the Bible teaches about the church. That's, some of that's your fault, if that's you, and some of that's the church's fault. And the church's fault because oftentimes the church doesn't teach much about the church, and the Bible says a lot about it. And so you don't understand how central it is to your growth, you don't understand how central it is to your own spiritual development. Some people are not, don't know, ignorant, you could say. I don't mean that in a negative way, just don't know. Some people are immature. And by immature means they might know some of this information, but they don't think it really applies to that. Like, I don't need the church. The church is just slowing me down. I like, got a whole bunch of stuff. I get involved in all these relationships. I mess everything up. It's, just, it's, a, it's a lack of maturity. It's a lack of life experience wisdom, not just knowledge. The third category of people, this is a scary one. I hope this is not any of you, but likelihood, statistically, it probably is. It's people that are arrogant. So if I could just find a church that was as spiritual as me, then everything would be great. But until I find that church, I'm not going to commit to a church. That's bad news. I hope it's none of you. If it is you, I hope God breaks your heart today as you look at the church the way that God sees it. Because here in this passage of Scripture, what we see is what God sees. And the first thing, first reason why we should commit to the church is this. The church is God's family. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of his family. And so the way he expresses this through the church. You see in verse 19, he says here, he says that we're a citizenship. We, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're members of this one house. All these people, members of one family together, and it express itself through these local gatherings, the local church. It's God's family. The church is God's family. So you saw it last week when we were looking at Acts chapter 2. Remember what was distinct about those people? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it said they devoted themselves. And, and we joked about what is devotion. Like we don't even know what devotion is because we're such a non-committal society, I said. And I gave the analogy, the example of how we go grocery shopping. And I said, we think because we got a loyalty card that we're committed to something. And so i got my Vic card, Harris Teeter. But if I'm closer to Food Lion, I'm going to Food Lion. And if Sam's got a sale on something, you know, I'll go over there. BJ's, Costco, Walmart, come as you are. Everybody's welcome. You know, you don't even have to have a card to go there. And there's all these places. And then somebody from the, the, the first service, they yelled out, Aldi, which i never shopped at Aldi, so I didn't know much about it. She came up to me today, this morning. It's <laughs> like, that was me. And I'm like, you love your store. There you go, lady. <laughs> And we think that that means we're devoted. That's not devotion. That's consumerism. We go to those places, we get what we want. And if something else is better for us, then we go to that place. We got a sale on meat, over the, We go whatever, we just do it. And that's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's wrong to treat the church like that. We're not supposed to just be contributors to a church either. It's not to move from consumer to contributor. We're communers. We're communers with Jesus and with each other. And when Acts chapter two and verse forty-two said, "As they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, they were d- devoted to God and to each other," there's a moment in the service last week where I asked you. I said, "Look around," and everybody was a little bit awkward. Everybody kind of stares forward, peeks side to side, and I could tell. So I said, "Look behind you. Look behind." And we had some people that were lined up on the back wall, seated, and one guy was on the back wall last week, and he came up to me afterwards, being a smart aleck. He goes, "I turned around. it was a brick wall. That's my church." nice job <laughs> I want you to make eye contact with each other that was the point I want you to see and I had one person that shared with me they said when you told us to look around that was a powerful moment for me I got emotional and they started to get emotional again and they said because I realized these are my people this is my church these are the people that I'm devoted to these are the people I'm committed to and that, that was my hope for you and that moments you'd see some of these people when you look around it's a diverse group of people and it's interesting in Acts chapter 2 is that we read this passage and we romanticize it, but if you go up a little bit, if you have your Bible, you can look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 9, it talks about how diverse this group was in the early church. There was 120, 3,120. It says, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. And then he talks about, like, there's Gentiles that have been converted to Judaism that were there for Pentecost. And there's all these different people. And I start looking at it, and I'm like, huh, Mesopotamia. I wonder what team they liked. Maybe the Mesopotamian Mudcats. <laughs> and Judea, like the Judean juggernauts. I, historically, I don't know if that's a real team. For those of you who are going to look that up, some of you go to seminary understand that, but it's not real. But just getting the idea, they had different places they came from. They had different experiences, had different likes. But in Acts chapter 2, it says they had everything in common. What is that? And I started thinking about our church body started thinking about folks that were here in the first service I looked out there was a guy who had played football for the University of Michigan he was on their national championship team and I hate Michigan football just to be clear because their fans are so arrogant yes I'm talking to you those of you who are watching <laughs> boo 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 anybody from Ohio State here I'm a Michigan State fan it's not a lot of those I guess some Ohio State people thank you for being here today we got a gift for you at the tent <laughs> there you <we> go <clears throat> But there's a diversity of people. And I started thinking about some of my friends in this church. There's one guy in my small group, he's from Tunisia. He actually likes cricket. I'm like, I don't even know what what you're doing. I don't even know what's happening in that game. And, then, and his background's Muslim. And then there's another guy in our church I was thinking about yesterday I was going over this message. His background, he's a, he's a Christian now, but he was part of the Jehovah's Witness Church. There's a lady that was sitting right where you're at, John Reeves in the first service. She's Jewish. And I started thinking about how different the people, you don't know this unless you get to know people in the body, but you start getting to know people. And we all got different experiences. We all got different backgrounds. We come from different places, religious differences. For a while, I thought that we were the church where, like, if a Baptist person married a Catholic and they didn't want to tell them we were Baptist church, they'd bring them here. <laughs> it's like a funny thing. And so we've got, like, all this, like, hey, we just kind of blends together. And they've got people and all this different stuff that come to this church. So how can we be one? As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, Acts chapter 2 talks about being devoted to one another. What does it mean they had all things in common? And then here in the context in Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Do you realize the animosity between Jews and Gentiles? They hated each other. I'm Not decades, centuries of hatred towards one another. So think, and American history, I know we're not even that old as a country, but think back to black drinking fountain, white drinking fountain. That's the type of stuff we're talking about here. Hatred for one another. In fact, in the temple, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, but had a Gentile background and they came to worship at the temple as a Jew, even though they weren't ethnically a Jew, they could only go so far. There was a sign in the temple that said this. It said, no foreigner, that's you Gentiles, and that's what most of us are, by the way, non-Jewish. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You'll be killed if you go beyond this point. There's a barrier. There's a blockade. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says the barrier has been broken. Amen. That's through Jesus Christ. He's picturing the barrier. It's like It's like a straw hut in the Florida Keys when Irma comes through. Blown away by the resurrection of Christ. The barrier's been broken. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, slave and free. You're all one in Christ. And so. You become one citizenship, one family. You're part of God's family, in this one family, but it's a very diverse family. That's a unified family, and that's what the church is supposed to be a picture of, is that there's diverse people with all these experiences, different races, different interests, different political views, believe it or not, different thoughts on what's the right thing to eat for their thing, what different types of schooling for their kids, different. Stuff, but one in Christ. Amen? Amen? Because it supersedes these things. Here in this passage of scripture, this, this is a prison epistle, uh, Bible students call this. Paul's writing this letter, epistle, from prison. You know why he's in prison? He's in prison because he was falsely accused, Acts chapter 21, of taking a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple. So there's racial tension in the writing of this letter. And he's writing saying, the church, there's no place for that. You're one citizenship. You're one family together. And you look and, and you see they had everything in common. What does that mean? They were willing to share their goods with one another. So what's being talked about in Acts chapter 2. Because we're on this mission together. One mission. One goal. You read Ephesians chapter 1. We're one family. We've got a, one inheritance that we share. You go through. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. That's the church. That's what it looks like to be God's family. We are one, very different. It's okay to be different. When you come to Christ, you're all of a sudden not the same as everybody else. That's not what it means to have everything in common. That means that you're willing to love these people in such a way you would sacrifice for them and count it a joy. Why? Because you've got so much in common. Do you know what you start off having in common? Sin. We've all got sin. Everyone here either is dead in their trespasses and sins. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your savior, I'll give you an opportunity to do so at the end of the service or you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you've been raised to Christ. And if you've been raised to have a relationship with Christ, spiritually raised from the dead, then you have one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. You live on one mission. You've got one purpose, one hope, one Father, our Father. Notice it's not my Father who art in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. That's your Father. It talks about in Ephesians chapter three, in Ephesians chapter five, it says that you're a child of God. Oftentimes when I talk to somebody and they place their faith in Jesus Christ, afterwards i'll go to john chapter one In john chapter one it says all those who believe on him he gives the right to be called children of god last week i shared with you that, that coming in here one of the guys that was doing greeting at the door of second service uh, he told me that he had led his daughter to christ the night before which is awesome by the way you don't get that if you're watching, just watching online you don't get those experiences of, of being together like that that's part of being in the church and we were talking about that and we hugged and we high-fived it was awesome his daughter is now going to spend eternity with jesus all of heaven rejoices over that. It's awesome. But I gained a sister in Christ. So that's not just Baptist language, brother. You don't have to say it that way. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who know Christ because we're part of one family. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 19. He gives the two analogies, citizenship and family. He says in verse 19, built on the foundation of the... Or no, uh, not, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. What does it mean to be a citizen? If you thought about that? And we're so just born into this country, what does it mean to be a citizen in a country? I was talking to a couple in my small group. They're from Canada. And I didn't know. I didn't know they weren't citizens. I just said, hey, tell me about how you became a citizen. They said, well, we're still in process because <laughs> it takes a long time. They're telling me, like two years on a work visa, five years having a green card. Then they have to take a test. I said, a test? What's the test? They said, we've got to, like, know all the governors. I'm like, I'd be kicked out of this country. What are you talking about? i got to know all the governors. You gotta show commitments, you make some vows, you commit, but when you become a citizen, you get rights. Different rights than if you're not a citizen. You know, some, of you, some of you are more involved in seeing the political stuff than I am. You see the DACA stuff that's going on. Because well, they're not citizens. There, there can be laws to protect them and they still not be citizens They don't have full rights as a citizen. When you become a citizen, you got rights, but you also have responsibilities. Voting, jury duty. Oh, Ooh, hopefully it doesn't come in the mail. But it's part of being a citizen. But here's the thing about what's being said here in this passage. We're not citizens here. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven. Amen. And so we live here in this place, but we're citizens of heaven. And so we are foreigners in America, in this world. So what is the church? The church is like an embassy. You know what an embassy is? I, was looking, I looked it up just to make sure I shared it accurately before the service. It says this. And Google's never wrong. It says this. <laughs> an embassy is the diplomatic representation of a country's government in another country. And then it says this, which I thought was amazing. It transmits messages of its home government to the government of the host country and vice versa. So we tell God about things that are happening here, and then we're supposed to tell people here about what? Your will as it is in heaven. Our mission. But when we come together as a body, it's like we're at the embassy. We're all together. We understand each other because we're part of the same citizenship. And then we disperse out into this place as representatives, ambassadors for Christ out in this world. But our citizenship isn't here, our citizenship is there. Sometimes we get so comfortable here in this consumeristic mindset and this idea that we've become conformed to this world, but we're supposed to be transformed by the truth. And the truth says this isn't your place. But when you come together in church, it's like, oh, it's like a haven. It's like a safe haven. You're with your people. And you understand each other because you've got one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. And you're one family. See, Paul ups to Annie in the next phrase. He says, not only you have the citizenship here. He says, with the saints. That's all the saints. Saints are repenting sinners and members of the household of God. That's family language. You're one family. You're part of the household of God. And so it says in Ephesians chapter 3, we've got one father. Ephesians chapter, uh, three, or chapter 5, that we are children. That's what it is, to be part of the family, to be together. You also have rights in the family. I think about my kids, no matter what happens in their lives, they're little right now, no matter what they do, they're always going to be my kids. No matter what job they have, no matter if they walk away from the Lord, they stay faithful to the Lord. So you might be a prodigal in God's family, you're still his child. You you might be faithful in God's family, you're his child. You might be a rebellious daughter, he still loves you. You're his daughter, he's calling you home. He's caring for you, he's pursuing you like a father would do. You're part of the family, but you also have responsibilities. What's the responsibility in your family? Think about your family. Some of you got good families. Some of you have bad families. Some of you have bad families. I hope that you'll find the church to be the place where this is better than family. Some of you got great families. Hopefully, you'll bring some of that stuff into the church. Think about my family. My family. Everybody's got responsibilities. It Doesn't matter how old you are. They got, it doesn't always happen, but they've got responsibilities assigned to them. So, like one person, it's my job to take out the garbage. It's so one person. One of the kids' job to empty the dishwasher. Another kid's job to fold the laundry with weeping and gnashing of teeth and far longer than it takes sometimes. But it's their job. We all have these responsibilities. It's just what we do because they don't get allowance for that, it's just part of being the family. So what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the family? You know what it means? It means to be a Christian. You see the one another's of scripture, you read through the one another's. That's not just for, so you know, your elite group of friends that you've handpicked to be in your accountability group because you've got some common interest or common stage of life. That's not the church by the way, just so you know. It's not bad to have. Not condemning it, but when you see the one another's of scripture, get forced to be put with somebody you wouldn't naturally hang out with. And see how God uses that in your sanctification process. <laughs> and for some of you, no, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church right now. You live out the one-another's, caring for one another, carrying each other's burdens, sharing. There's 59 one-another's in scripture. You're not meant to live the Christian life alone. And then God's plan is the church. He uses the church. Because it's God's family. That's the first reason. Second reason, skim down a little bit, in chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, is that Paul talks about this mystery of the gospel that he is supposed to speak. And the mystery is not just that Jesus died for our sins, that we can be reconciled to him. It goes beyond that, that reconcile people, reconcile with each other. And he's talking about that the gospel, that there'd be this thing called the church that you didn't see in the Old Testament. It wasn't clear in the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed until now. That's why it's a mystery. But it's now revealed to God's people, the church where Gentiles don't have to become Jewish before they become Christian. They're just part of, they come into Christ, they have one sphere, one Lord, one baptism, them living together, this amazing thing. And what you end up seeing is, I hope I'll just read this verse and will will have to make a lot of comments about it. I hope this verse will rock some of our worlds and change our view of the church. This is just reading this one verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to start reading verse 9, but verse 10 is what I want you to get. And what it teaches is this. The second reason why we should love the church is the church is your greatest opportunity. Unapologetic, there's not one that compares to it. Your greatest opportunity to put God's glory on display. It's why you were created, to glorify God. Westminster Confession, the chief end of man, glorify God, enjoy him forever. That is why you exist, that's why we exist. We talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change. It's ultimately for the glory of God. Make disciples, for the glory of God. We sing praises, for the glory of God. We are obedient to God, for the glory of God. Your greatest, there is no bigger opportunity, in your life, in any opportunity you'll get to glorify God apart from the church. I don't know. Well, let me read you the verse. In verse 9 it says this. And to bring to light, and so he's talking about how he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ, to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And to bring to light for everyone what is the, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Do you want to see God's power? Look at creation. He created all things. But look what he says. And I want you to notice what he does how he does it, and who he's doing it for. So that through the church, that's how he does it. That is the way, that it, the means by which it happens. Through the church, what is it that he does? The manifold, multifaceted, beyond what we're unsearchable for us, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So let that sink in for just a minute and think about what are all the things you can give your life away to? Your job, your family, some cause. Pick any cause, any cause that's not the church. Pick any cause and what happens at the church is bigger. And so you could, you know, try and cure world hunger. I've heard people talk about that as a vision before. Try and end poverty—big. That's great, that'd be awesome to do that. Not as big a deal as being the church. Stop abortions, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? But not as big as the church. Translate the Bible into some language that people never heard, that'd be amazing. Eternal impact, not as big a deal as the church. Why is the church a big deal? I've heard people say before, and Bill Hybels said one time, but the church is the hope of the world, and everybody else quotes it. Church is the hope of the world, that's a big deal, that's a big statement. But it's bigger than that. You can talk about last week, we looked at Acts chapter two, 120 people, then 3,000 people trust Christ. And 3,000 turns into 5,000, and you keep going through Acts and they keep counting these numbers, and they weren't. I don't even think there was Baptists back then. But they're counting everything. Why? Why? What's happening? What you end up seeing is that from that 120 people, billions of people have come to know Jesus Christ. Think about that. But what is talking about in this passage is bigger than that. It's not because of worldwide evangelism. It's not because of the verse that I quoted last week. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. On this rock, I, God, builds His church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell hell will not prevail against it. Only organization gets that promise. That's not why it's the biggest deal. It's right here in this passage. It's what he's doing and who he's doing it for. He's doing it through the church. The manifold wisdom of God is being put on display. How? When he reconciles people to himself and then they live like The church the Jews and Gentiles different people together one spirit one Lord one baptism reconciled people are reconciled with people it reveals the wisdom of God and who is it made known to the rulers and authorities it's bigger than anything that can happen on this earth in the heavenly places in the, in the unseen world he's talking about angels here I know some of you believe in angels, some of you don't believe in angels, that's fine. If you don't believe in them, it doesn't mean they don't exist. Uh, I don't have time to do a whole thing on angelology right now, but as you see angels throughout the scriptures, you see some are bad angels, that means demons. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about spiritual battle, the rulers and authorities of the air that rule over this earth. And you see throughout other places in the scripture, go to Hebrews, it talks about the ministering spirits, the minister to believers in times of need, angels. And so there's angels throughout the Bible, and and there's this unseen world that many times we don't even think of, And God's saying he's using the church to put on display his wisdom and it's through the church. That's the only place he does it through. Through the church, he's doing something that's cosmic. Something that's bigger than anything that we see. Some bigger than, you know, Bill Gates starts Microsoft. That's awesome. You did that with your life. That's great. The church is a bigger deal. You feed a bunch of people. That's great. The church is a bigger deal. Be the church. What does it look like to be the church? To live, reconcile, reconcile people, reconcile with people. And what happens? All of heaven is onlooking. So at all of time, watching. And so you see here what's actually happening. It's like there's this classroom and God is the teacher and the audience is angels and the lesson is the church. That's the illustration. That's what's being put on display. And as the angels watch, they're blown away over and over and over again. And how, does, how does that person get along with that person? How does this, that person was reconciled to you and you did? The Bible says this over and over again. We just oftentimes read past it because we want to know what's there for me. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, every time that somebody comes to Christ, angels long to look into those things. Here's why. Because an angel will never know experientially what it's like to be redeemed. They'll never know what it's like to go their own way, to kind of do their own thing, and then come to the place where they stop, that's called repentance, and they turn back to God and are reconciled to God. So every time it happens for us, it blows their minds. They've never experienced anything like that. And, so, and, and I told you last week, you know, my friend tells me about leading his daughter to Christ who's coming in this week, and... Last week we high-fived, we hugged. Luke chapter 15, verse seven and verse 10 say the same thing. All of heaven rejoices. The angels are beyond counting for us. They all rejoice when one sinner repents. They're watching what's happening in our lives. And when they see the church, it says here in this passage, the manifold, you wanna see the power of God? Look at creation. You wanna see the wrath of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, look at the cross. You wanna see the manifold wisdom of God? Look at the church. Now think about that, because some of us will be like, man, the church is foolish. The Bible talks about that. That's a, a human way to look at things. But God's His wisdom so surpasses ours, it looks like foolishness from a humanistic perspective. And it's God's wisdom that he puts on display through the gospel lived out. That's the church. It's through the church that your greatest opportunity to put God's glory on display is being the church. And so the church is a pretty significant place. How does it happen? when we reconcile with one another. I had one friend that wrote me this week. I was a newer believer in our church and he was sharing with me about his own struggle with what happened in Charlottesville uh, recently, the race, that hate, the white supremacists that were happening there and the tragedy that took place. And he was telling me that his struggle was not what happened with the victims, had compassion for the victims, all that stuff, but it was the, it was the white supremacists. He said, I have a hard time praying for these. Like, I'm, I, I hate them for their hatred. He said, it took me a whole day to get to a place where I could pray for them. Some of you are like, I didn't even think about praying for them. I just want to like punch them in the face. I'll be convicted by this new believer in our church. And he said, what God brought him to is he brought him to this article that he ended up reading. I ended up seeing a TV special on of a black guy who's a musician, was playing in this club. And he ended up talking to a white guy that was there. And then through their conversation, he ended up realizing that the white guy was in the KKK. And the white guy had said to him, he's like, I've never heard anybody play the piano like that. You play like Jerry Lee Lewis. And the guy's like laughing, like, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play like that? Not from a white guy. (laughs) And they start talking, and they start a relationship, and the guy ended up leaving the KKK. And then the guy started sharing how he's befriended a bunch of, he started something in him where he's befriended a bunch of people in the KKK. And what he does is when they leave the KKK, he collects their hoods and their robes. And he's had 200 people through relationships leave the KKK. And I was thinking about it and I thought, I wonder if his family someday are going to be like, why does he have 200 KKK robes? Like, (laughs) (laughs) But maybe they'll see this article. And it happens through relationship. And he talks about an article too about uh, how the NAACP got mad at him. And then he asked the unnibble ACP, how many people have you had leave the Ku Klux plan? they're like, zero. Also, zero. By yelling at someone and telling them that they're wrong, you've won zero people over. Maybe we should learn something from that as the church. But through relationships, he's had 200 people convert from the KKK by getting to know each other and realizing they're real people. But you know what was interesting to me? Is there was nothing in the article that said that they were believers. And then I thought to myself, if somebody who is not a believer in Jesus Christ can experience reconciliation like that. But we have the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living inside of us. How much more should we be able to reconcile with one another? But we've got to live close enough to one another to sin against each other, which by the way will happen because we're all sinners. And then care enough to actually talk about that sin with each other and then decide to reconcile. That's the church. And when angels see us living like that, it blows their mind for the glory of God. And that is why the church is the greatest opportunity to put on display the glory of God. But we have to live out the one another's scripture amongst people that aren't necessarily like us. They don't like all the things that we like. They don't think all the things that we think. That's the church. And that brings glory to God. One commentator talking about this passage I read this week. Says this, the church's very existence and conduct are making known how great God's plan of salvation is, both to the people and to the powers. This gives an unparalleled importance to the church. John Piper, he was preaching on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 one time. He said this: the Church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. Well, think about that. People die for this country. A lot of people in this country dying for the church. Maybe you don't get the opportunity to understand. Maybe that's an unfair question. Would they? Or instead, are they using the church for their own spiritual commodities that they collect to feel good about them, to feel better about their relationship with God? As a place to be religiously entertained for an hour or so on a Sunday morning? Or do they view it as a place to be committed to? Like more so than someone would be committed to a nation. Because the church, our third point, is actually the bride of Christ. So flip over a page if you brought an old school copy of the Bible like I have here. Or if you got an app, you might just wanna scroll down. But in Ephesians chapter five, it talks about the church as the bride of Christ. And I wanna read to you verses 25 through 27. And the third reason why we should be committed to the church is because the church is the bride of Christ. A lot of times when we read these verses, we, we just think about what it means to be a good marriage, to have a, be a good husband, be a good wife. But I want you to look at them with different eyes this time. And, and as we read these verses, think about God's love for his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. And why did he do that? And why would he die for the church? And some of us, we never even thought about the fact that Jesus died for the church. Maybe you've heard preachers say before, when Jesus was on the cross, he was, dying, he was thinking of your name. When Jesus was dying, if, there was only, if you were the only one, he'd have died for you. I don't think anywhere else in the world other than America, that gets said, by the way, just so you know. Because we're so individualistic as a country. It's one of the reasons why we struggle with the concept of church. When Jesus died, I get why that gets said. I understand that. He wants you to have a personal relationship. With him. totally get that. He was dying for the church. We oftentimes don't think about that. He shed his blood for the church, corporate. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. This is how he cares for his bride. by the washing of water with the word, the truth being preached. So that, here's the reason why he wants her to, to be cleansed, so that he might present the church to himself. He helps his bride get ready present his church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now she's messed up right now. She's not perfect right now, but he loves her and he's transforming her that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is his bride. The word that's used here in verse 25 for uh, husbands, love your wives is Christ loved the church, agapao. That word means seeking the highest good for another. That's how Jesus loves the church. He seeks her highest good. Most of us use the church. We use the church for our highest good. You help me with something that I need. That's our consumer mentality that fights against community, that fights against us being devoted to one another, that fights against us being the church. There's a quote that's oftentimes attributed to St. Augustine. I'm going to read it to you in a second. If you don't like it, email him. <laughs> it's this. The church is a whore, but she's still my mother. And what's oftentimes being said by that, and maybe it was Augustine that said it, maybe it was somebody else. What's being taught, what's being said is the church is not faithful to Jesus. But Jesus is faithful to her. And some people will use, you know, Hosea the prophet, and they'll talk about that, because it's supposed to be a picture of God's love for his people. And they, he tells this prophet to go marry this woman. She goes, and she prostitutes herself. says, you keep going after her and bringing her back. And that's how God treats us. And oftentimes as a church, we will get off mission, and we'll forget that our point is to make disciples, and we exist for the glory of God. And we'll make it about programs or buildings or whatever the stuff is. and we, we miss. We, and he keeps coming after us. And We start worshiping stuff to other idols and it happens with the people that are in the church and all this stuff happens and he keeps loving us. But we act like a prostitute. In America, I think the quote could be tweaked and say this, the church is Jesus' bride not your whore. Because we treat the church like a whore. Not only do we pursue false gods and we do a spiritual adultery but the very way we use the church. The church is there to meet my needs. The church is here for me and so I'm going to come and get what I and if I can't find it at this place, I'm going to find it another place. I'm going to keep going. And if I like one place, maybe I'll even give a financial tip. But I'm not committed. I mean, I'm loyal. I show up. I go to the same place most of the time, but but Jesus was all in for his bride. We treat her like a prostitute. Let me tell you something. Jesus' bride is not your whore. If you are offended by that statement, I hope it's because you're treating the church like a whore. If you don't, I'm not talking to you. We don't need to have lunch together. You can stop listening at this moment if you don't treat the church like this, but if you treat the church like a consumer, if you treat the church like it's there, it exists for your sake then I hope you are offended. And I hope it'll shake you into changing. Because you look at the way that Jesus loved the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. He was all in. And so you think about what he sees when he looks at the church. He looks at his bride. Think about these weddings that I've done. Every groom is excited about seeing their bride. The wedding that I did this weekend, I told you, the guy was looking down. And I didn't get to see his face. We made some transitions and we got in the spot. And then he looked at me and his eyes were just welling up with tears. And I was like, man, cut it out. I'm going to start crying. I got a lot of stuff to say here. Because he loves his bride. Let me tell you something. It's, it's always that way. Some guys cry. Some guys smile. Some are just so excited. Some like they just can't wait for that. You may kiss your bride. It's like they just start getting closer and closer. You know, they're, they're all excited. It doesn't matter who she is, what she's like. It doesn't matter her personality. It doesn't matter her physical appearance. None of that stuff matters. That's his bride. She can be tall. She can be short. She can be funny. She can be serious. It doesn't matter. That's his girl. We are messed up as a people. We are sinful people. We are imp- repenting sinners. We talked about it last week. He says here, He's sanctifying us with His truth. He's the one doing the work changing us. We're His bride, and He loves us. So, in that, that marriage ceremony, after I did the vows with that couple, the next is the exchanging of the rings. And that's when they say the famous lines that oftentimes get attributed to a wedding ceremony I do. He gives this ring for this. I do. You know, Jesus was saying, I do, when he went to the cross when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was saying, I do, not just to you individually, as to the church. He gave himself up for the church. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. That's I do. It is finished. That's I do. I am committed. He was all in for the church. So shouldn't we be? Jesus' pride, not your whore. They don't treat her that way. We should be committed to the church. If not this church, maybe not Southbridge. You'd be like, I'm ah, self-serving. You're the pastor of the church. Hey, listen, I would rather you left this church and were obedient at some other church here in town than staying here and being disobedient. Find the place where you can commit. Find the people you can commit to that you can live on mission with. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism. Live like family. Re- reconcile with the people that you've been reconciled to God and you could reconcile with each other, but you've got to live so close that you'd actually wrong each other and then reconcile with each other. Be the lead repenters in the community. So when people look at it, it's not irrelevant. It's It's different. It's weird. And why do they act? Why do they live? Why do they love each other like that? And then they would know that God sent his son Jesus to love them. That's the church. And that's why we should be committed. Let's pray.